Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of New Books Network. This is your host, Morteza Hajizadeh from Critical Theory Channel. And today I have a very, very special guest, Dr. Michael Gordon, who is a professor of modern and contemporary history and also the director uh, of the Society of Fellows in the Liberal Arts at Princeton University. Uh, Dr. Michael Gordon recently published a book with Oxford University Press called Pseudoscience, a very short introduction. And today I'm very honored to be able to speak to him about this wonderful and a very timely book. Michael, welcome to New Books Network. Well, thank you very much. I'm glad to be here. Thank you for having me. Uh, this is such a topical issue as we were talking before recording this interview and uh, and there's a lot of lot of talk about pseudoscience these days or what is uh, legitimate science and what is simply noise and especially I guess after COVID-19 this became more um, to, to, the, to the forefront. So let, let us start with a definition in your book in from in your scope of research how do you define pseudoscience and I know it's a tricky question because it's not really easy to come up with a clear cut definition right so this is a large portion of my interest in the topic was this problem of how to define pseudoscience uh, and the short answer is I don't uh, because to have a clear concept of what pseudoscience is you have to the general understanding of it is that it is something that is trying to be science, but somehow isn't, is lacking some quality, which implies that you have a very clear definition of what science is. And that proves to be quite hard to do in a robust, rigorous manner. So pseudoscience as a term, is a, it's a term used to demonize things that claim to be science or have arguments that they are scientific, but that other people think aren't. So it's a negative category. It's a category of abuse. The equivalent, I think, uh, that's clearest to people is heresy. No one actually thinks they're a heretic. They think that they believe in the right religion, and those other people are heretics, even if they are the Orthodox Church. Um, And pseudoscience is like that. It's a term used by people who want to criticize another point of view, but no one walks around and says, I'm a pseudoscientist, and I work in my pseudo lab, and I make pseudo facts. They all think, and I, I think believe this is the central inside of the book, they all think they're doing science. And what should, what does that, um, what does that mean for us? How, if we took that idea seriously, we don't have to agree with them, but what if we took it seriously that they think that's what they're doing? It opens up a space to look at a whole lot of doctrines and to see why some are uh, fingered by others as pseudoscientific and how the people so labeled are demonized. I know that that's a lot of qualifications. I often use the term fringe science to describe the set of things that other people might label pseudosciences. But it's worth noting that the creationists, the people who believe the earth was created in six days and that there's scientific evidence of that in the landscape, think that Darwinism is pseudoscientific. Uh, So the, the term pseudoscience is thrown around on all sides of this. And so to get away from that, I try to look at how people use it, as opposed to trying to define it uh, from first principles. And I uh, hadn't come across the term fringe sciences, which you use in your book, and I really uh, prefer that one as well, because the moment you use, I guess, it's just my idea, and I could be wrong, the moment you use the term pseudoscience, there's a lot of negative connotation attached to it that you completely shut down conversation. And I used to think that people, for example, who were anti-vaxxers were all superstitious or followers of conspiracy theories. But 
you know, reading more books and about them, I came to realize a lot of them do not have enough information. They're not necessarily uh, followers of, let's say, uh, conspiracy theories, it's, but there needs to be this possibility to establish a dialogue. And the term pseudoscience, I guess, sort of shuts down that. And it's like a term, uh, uh, like a moniker that is thrown around, as you mentioned at the beginning. Uh, and you, you know, there, there, there are some, let's say, terms that I guess it's helpful for the uninitiated uh, to know. And one of them is in scientific community, of course, it's very well established. One of them is demarcation problem. And then you talk about Karl Popper's idea of falsibility, which is falsifiability, which is uh, quite well established, but at the same time put under question these days, because there are a lot of flaws associated with that in terms of their empirical uh, adequacy. Can you talk about demarcation problem and why this idea of falsif uh, falsifiability is, 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 does not hold water as, as much as we want it, maybe? Uh, yeah, so the, the term demarcation problem was coined by Karl Popper, who was a philosopher uh, from Austria originally, but his uh, later career after he was forced to emigrate in the 30s was in the United Kingdom. Um, and he created this notion of a demarcation problem, but he didn't create the problem. The problem of how to differentiate between legitimate and illegitimate knowledge, between things that uh, are, are understood to be reliable knowledge and those things that are not, is extremely old. That is, as far back as we have documents where people claim something is rigorous knowledge or scientific or scholarly, they, those texts at the same time are always pointing to other people who are not that uh, or who are claiming to be that. Um, so the demarcation problem was Popper's term. It, it, it's unclear when exactly he coined it, but probably in the 1920s, in order to differentiate between things that are science, things that are not science, so like gardening or whatever you would have. There's many possibilities. And then things that are pseudoscience, which are things that are not science, but that are claiming or mm. pretending or have pretensions of being science, but fail in some way. So Popper was fascinated by this problem. Biographically, the reason, part of the reason he was fascinated by that problem is uh, when he was a student in Vienna, he was interested in two different um, intellectual movements that were quite prominent. One was Marxism, which styled itself as scientific socialism. Another was psychoanalysis in its various forms, Freudian, Adlerian, and so on. And he, he, came, he became convinced that both of these doctrines claimed to be sciences, but somehow weren't. And he wanted to figure out what was the difference, what, what was wrong with them. And he came up with falsifiability. He, he claimed that his inspiration for this was the eclipse expedition to confirm or to, or to test Albert Einstein's general theory of relativity that was uh, put forward by British scientists in 1919, uh, where they measured the, the, the positions of stars around the sun during a solar eclipse to see what their positions were, and then compared it with a field where the sun wasn't there in order to argue that their positions were moved, uh, which, he, which Einstein said was a prediction that, would be that could be explained by his theory of general relativity that light beams bend a certain amount within a gravitational field. And what Popper loved about this eclipse expedition was also the news reports, some of which are apocryphal, that Einstein said, if they don't detect it, then the theory is wrong and we have to throw it away because it's just part of the theory. Popper was very impressed with the wager aspect of this, the like you layer 
claim on the line and it's either confirmed or rejected. And he mm -hmm. thought that psychoanalysis and Marxism didn't do that. And so falsifiability is his way of articulating that. To have a falsifiable theory, according to Popper, is a theory in which you can state certain conditions that if they were found, certain empirical observations, that if they happen to be the case, the theory would be wrong. The theory would be falsified. If you cannot articulate any circumstance in which your theory could be proved wrong, so for example, Newtonian gravity, you could say, look, I have a ball here and I'm going to drop it. I'm standing on earth and I'm going to drop it. And if it doesn't fall, but stays hovering in the air, then my theory of gravity is wrong. Uh, so Newtonian physics is falsifiable in that regard. But if you didn't have that, if you added assumptions and said, well, maybe the ball is made out of some floaty substance, or maybe there's a counter, if you constantly tinkered with it so that it could never be disconfirmed, that would be pseudoscientific, according to Popper. And this is a very attractive theory. Uh, a lot of people like the bravado of the wager, like find this effect and I'll be wrong. They also like the bright line aspect of it. It gives you a test by which you can just look at a theory, say, is this theory falsifiable? And if it is, if it is, then it's a candidate for scientific knowledge. We still have to do the tests. But if it's not falsifiable, it's not even worth discussing. It's, it's in the pile of pseudosciences. So this is Popper's theory. It has more elaborate aspects to it, but the basic uh, crux is that. And there, there are a bunch of things that uh, are wrong with it. And most, uh, most academic philosophers would say that Popper's theory is not rigorous and doesn't hold up for a variety of technical reasons, which I will present clearly here. Um, but they've looked for alternatives, none of which have fully panned out and none of which have the attractive quality of the bright line. So the first problem with Popper is that um, it, it's hard to know when we falsified something. Um, the example I use in the book, and this is something that always struck me when I was uh, a high school student in science class, is that we would replicate all of these classic scientific experiments, and I never got the right result. Like, I, I was just never able to get the result that we knew was the case. My pendulum wouldn't swing the right way. I never got the right uh, chemical reaction. Does that mean I have falsified the theory? Does that mean that theory is now wrong? Or does it mean that I've messed up? that somehow my technique wasn't the case. I think we'd all agree it's more probable that I'm incompetent rather than that organic chemistry is false. Um, but uh, in any particular knowledge claim, you're not just testing the theory, you're also testing the instruments and whether they're operating or, and calibrated correctly, you're testing the competence of the experimenter, all of those things are being tested. So a single null result doesn't necessarily falsify a theory. It's that th this picture of true, false, yes, no, just isn't how empirically science is done or verified. So problem one is that, how do you know that you've adequately falsified the theory? It turns out to be much murkier. And so the bright line quality is a face. Problem two is I think more serious, which is um, we, we want any criterion for demarcation which is what we call these things like falsifiability, um, to cut the world in the right places. So we want all of the things that we think are sciences, um, particle physics, natural selection, geology, cosmology, biochemistry, we want all those things to be sciences. And we want things like UFOs and uh, 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 
phrenology and eugenics. We want all those things to be pseudosciences and we want them to be cut in the right way. If you apply falsifiability, and this was noticed immediately by philosophers, um, certain theories, a certain areas of science, which we could call the historical sciences, things like geology or evolutionary biology, where there's, there's only one earth, like it had a history to it. So we can make claims about it, but we can't test things by creating a new earth and running it again. We just have the traces that are left here. Those, theory, th those sciences make many claims that don't meet the falsifiability criterion. Um, it, it happens that life evolved the way it evolved. Uh, and it didn't evolve another way. We can't like insert the dinosaurs living a little longer and seeing what could happen. So Popper's criterion works really well for laboratory sciences, things like physics for which it was designed, but also molecular biology, genetics, and less well for a whole bunch of others. At the same time, lots of things like parapsychology, the search for ESP, are highly falsifiable. Like they, they pr produce experiments, they make predictions, they make claims. And this gets even worse because once Popper became popular, uh, people like the creationists create falsifiable claims. They're like, if you find this, then we're false. And the thing that they specify is so unlikely to come about that it, it loses its purchase. At the same time that they say that Darwinism isn't falsifiable, but they are. So the criterion doesn't do what we want it to do in practice. And the third reason, which I'm going to say very briefly, is that Popper actually doesn't believe in truth. He doesn't think we know true things. We just know things are not yet false. Uh, and that's what undergirds his entire philosophy. It's a, it's a quite interesting perspective. I just don't think that represents what most scientists think they're doing. They're just not yet falsely, not yet falsing the world. Um, they're trying to uncover something else. And I think that that affective dimension it is important and it misses something to think in a Popperian way. So th those are the reasons why I think Popper doesn't quite work. Um, it's popular in part because it's easy to teach. You can put it in a biology textbook and because a variety of legal struggles in the United States made it salient uh, in the 1980s that then produced the impetus to put them in textbooks. So now almost anybody trained in an Anglophone textbook at the uh, even middle school level, but certainly high school and college level gets exposed to this idea. So all of my students, when they come into university already have heard of it. So, and that's unusual. I had not heard of it until I was in university. It wasn't, and I entered university in the early nineties. It was really in the nineties that this massive popularity of this idea took place, which is a few decades after most scientists, most philosophers had already passed on from it. And, and and as you mentioned, there isn't really any viable, let's say, easy alternative to this, but we also have replication. But again, we have replication crisis in sciences, especially like social yeah. sciences. Yeah, there isn't there isn't a good alternative to this. Uh, this is this is worrisome to a lot to certain people that like we should be able to say what good science is and we should be able to say what pseudoscience is, and then we can just get on with things. Part of the reason there's a persistent fringe is because it's actually not straightforward to do that. Um, I think we have proxies that we use. Uh, the consensus of the scientific community is a proxy most people use for what's likely to be true. The problem with that as a rigorous standard is that the consensus of the scientific community can be wrong. 
the consensus of the scientific community in the 19th century was that there is an ether upon which light waves move. Mm. And Einstein's special relativity says, well, you don't need that, actually. and We can get by without it. And now no one thinks that's true, except for people on the fringe who want to revive it. Um, so uh, there, the consensus is often wrong. The consensus used to be against germ theory and now is pro-germ theory for explaining a lot of infectious disease. So it's not a great proxy, but it is a proxy. And we use these all the time. But the fact that science doesn't have this um, reliable standard is to me just a feature of it as an activity. It's part of the reason I'm interested in the history of science as a field. Science is a dynamic, constantly transforming field where things that we thought were true 10 years ago, we no longer think are true now. And we think new things that we didn't before. That's part of what's exciting about it. But that instability gives space for other ideas that are unreliable to float around. And the community has to come to a resolution about how to handle new claims that are unorthodox. Some of those will become a new orthodoxy and some of them will be dismissed as wrong or as irrelevant. Um, but coming to terms with that is, is not really a philosophical, it's not a philosophically tractable problem, I think. It's a social problem. It's a problem that the community of scientists and interested people come to together and they develop techniques like peer review or other mechanisms like that to um, help corral in a bit the, the chaos that would otherwise ensue. And I guess the mechanism you just mentioned, peer review in general, consensus, scientific community consensus is still more the, the best option maybe we have available, despite all its limitations. But uh, there have been a number of issues with with, with scientific publications, which we'll talk about, I guess, as we go ahead. Yeah. And uh, uh, I'm also interested to know more about vestigial sciences that you talk about. Sciences, what what, what do you mean by vestigial sciences? Uh, so this is a, a term that I uh, sort of, uh, I came up with to characterize a phenomenon that's quite common, which is um, many of the things that we now consider pseudosciences or that are not we, I would say that they're commonly labeled pseudosciences, um, like astrology, for example, mm -hmm. they weren't just once sciences, like astrology in the 16th century in Europe was the science. It was incredibly well-funded, highly mathematical, very predictive, and backed by states. In those cases, princes used to have an astrologer at court. Um, and it took time for that theory to become delegitimized. And there's a bunch of reasons why that was, predictions that failed too often, uh, new models of the heavens, uh, like Copernicanism, new stars are discovered, the models start to break down. So for a variety of reasons, that body of doctrine, which was once considered a science, is no longer considered a science. That's what I call a vestigial science, something that at one point had scientific credibility and then lost it. The ether in physics is another one of these extremely scientific in the 19th century. Everybody, Maxwell, like uh, based his theory around the ether and developed models of it. That if someone came to you today and said, I have a new theory, a new model of the ether in physics, they would probably be laughed out of the room or dismissed as a crank. Um, even if that model was exactly the same as the model that Maxwell had, uh, which was considered scientific in its day. And this is just a way of uh, recognizing this dynamic temporal quality of science, that some things come in to consensus and there are good reasons to believe them. 
and then there are good reasons to reject them later. Um, the astrology, there's the good reasons to believe them. Someone might say, like, what good reasons are there to believe them? Um, well, these are some pretty basic ones. We, we've known that people have observed for a very long time that the tides are related to the phases of the moon. So there's an astronomical object that affects stuff on Earth. Likewise, the sun obviously affects things on Earth, and also at the length of the day affects things on Earth. So the movements of the heavens for the sun and the moon clearly seem to have something to do with what goes on on Earth. And there's an extension of that to planets and stars that happens mm -hmm. from there. So it's based on an observation that I think most people would grant, an empirical observation. And then it, it goes a bit beyond it, and it claims to have other findings. And then after testing it a long time, people came to reject it. So uh, a vestigial science is what I label as a science that at one point had scientific credibility and doesn't anymore. The, the unsettling part of this idea is that many ideas that we might now believe have the potential to become vestigial. Mm. Most, most sciences in the most scientific theories over the history of time have been rejected. So that if you pick any scientific theory from any time at random, chances are it's been discredited. Most of those don't become fringe sciences or vestigial sciences. Most of them just go away. But some of them gain enough adherence who kind of hold on to it a little longer. And that holding on to it produces a community around it of people who think that this theory has legs and they keep pushing for it. Alchemy went through a similar transition to astrology a little later, um, but was a very, it was always a little bit of a weird uh, area of knowledge and that people tended to do it in secret for a variety of reasons. But Isaac Newton did it. Robert Boyle did it. Very Almost everybody who was interested in the chemical sciences engaged in what you might now call alchemy. In fact, the terms are interchangeable in the mm -hmm. 17th century. Mm -hmm. um, so, uh, but, but some theories that until quite recently people thought were like the idea that dinosaurs uh, survive in the form of birds was considered an extremely weird theory. And now not believing it is problematic. Like, so that theory came in. Um, so, 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 and some theories that we believe today will be proved false in 10 years. And mm. some of them may come to find adherence later. Mm. Um, the, the flat earth theory, which had been rejected in ancient Greece, has recently found adherence. So it, it, there's no uh, expiration date on when you can go back and find something that you, strikes you as very impressive. And I'm sometimes myself curious why this happens. The flat Earth was a good example that you mentioned. It's been proven that the Earth is round more than 2,000 years ago, and more or less there was really no debate about it. But then towards the end of 19th century again, and again more recently, and it's not only in the United States, I or parts of your I'm originally from Iran myself, and I follow the news and social media, and I was just amazed to find out like there were people sort of influences on Instagram or Twitter with 50 or 60,000 followers who are just putting up false videos or making really ridiculous claims about flat earth. But it's to me, it's this whole process of the process of when, what happens when maybe a scientific theory is proven wrong or it loses its currency. But and the, and, and the other way around, when a theory that has been completely rejected, say, flat earth, again, gains more uh, adherence. I'm really curious to know more about this process of what happens. 
it, it, so it, it's it, I think it's different in different cases. In astrology, um, what basically happened is the theory was delegitimized by the 18th century and kind of went out of fashion. There's other elements in South Asia. There's still religiously inflected astrology that was used to pick auspicious days, like things like that still happened, but it was very much seen as part of the religious sphere, not part of the scientific sphere. Astrology became popular again in the 1930s when on a lark, British newspapers decided because a royal baby was born to print its astrological prediction and people loved it. So it became a staple of newspapers and that revived it again. And astrology, it, it, it provides, there are many sort of like we can do some sort of like pop psychological attempts to explain people's place in the universe and so on. There are many reasons people might believe it, but I think the reasons they believe it, that many of them come to think it has some empirical validity. That is their horoscopes actually are borne out by, and the horoscopes of other people are borne out in reality. Um, alchemy is different because alchemy kind of um, never really went away. It just, um, first, there, you, got, you started to get a differentiation between people who called themselves chemists and called other people alchemists. They did basically the same thing, but those who weren't interested in trying to transform metals or look for a elixir of immortality tried to demonize the others by calling them something different using another term for them. But those people still continued to work. And over time, they've just gotten smaller, but continued onward. They never quite went away. Eugenics is similar. It never, it never went away. It, it became, af after the Holocaust and then the civil rights movements of the 1960s worldwide, became delegitimized as a thing that you're supposed to advocate as a serious scientific theory. But in hidden forms, it persists in the science, not that hidden, in sort of like sublimated forms, it persists in the sciences in multiple ways. And active eugenics is still around. It just, it never quite went through a death. Flat Earth is different. Flat Earth, I think, it feels to me in its current form as a product of, as something that was enabled by the social media ecosystem of the 21st century. And it has an impulse that's very similar to trolling. Uh, like, what, what is the knowledge claim of flat earth theory? It's not that the earth is flat. They, they claim that that's obvious to you when you look outside. Um, the claim is that people are lying to you about the earth being round. Like, that's, the, that's their main focus. So the space program is a conspiracy. Globes are a conspiracy. All of those things. And, and that feature, that search for the conspiracy theoretic or um, needling people for their establishment views and asking them to defend them, that, uh, that uh, sentiment is prominent. When you see interviews with flat earthers, this is a very prominent sentiment mm -hmm. among them. I, again, I don't want to demonize. I think they sincerely believe that something is up with the flat earth globe situation, but I think most of them sincerely believe that. Um, but uh, the the it has a conspiracy theoretic aspect that a lot of these other ones, like astrology doesn't have that. Yeah. Um, and, and it was an interesting point you raised. I, I talked to someone about uh, seven or six months ago about a book that he had published with Oxford Press about vaccine hesitancy. And what she mentioned was that a lot of this backlash against vaccines sometimes comes from the lack of trust in governments or that social institutions have failed them. And the point that you mentioned, they these people flat earthers, instead of trying to prove the earth is flat, usually say that you've been 
lied to, which is more or less shows it's a sign of lack of their trust in institutions for whatever reason, which I guess is a totally different subject here. Right. It's uh, related to this in that, in, in that like the part of the reason people uh, are interested in vestigial sciences is they feel like the establishment has thrown away something mm -hmm. too early. And it's suspicion of the establishment. UFOs is a very good example of this in that it's, it is conspiracy theoretic, but it's also at a time of Cold War security yeah. anxiety where the fact that the government will be lying to you is actually not mm. empirically reasonable mm. as an idea. Mm. Sorry, uh, I didn't mean to cut you off. No, no, no. That that was a perfect point you mentioned. Uh, another thing that I'm, I come from humanities background, and I remember that when I was doing my PhD, I shared the office with a friend of mine who was who again did come from a humanities background. He was in the Department of Literature, but he was doing evolutionary psychology. So it and the examples or the the texts were literary texts, but the methodology was evolutionary psychology and. We were great friends, but we rarely had anything in common because I was looking at it from a humanities perspective, and he was looking at things from uh, evolutionary biology, evolution psychology. Sorry, so he firmly believed that he has a scientific method, and what he says is objective. And he sometimes jokingly told me, uh, "Mori, you need to take off your ideology glasses." And uh, so there's there's this conception that humanities are all inflicted with this ideology totally subjective, which could be mm -hmm. correct to some extent. And then there is this idea that science is completely objective. And I myself live in Australia. A couple of years ago, I read an article that some research fellows in, um, in universities near Western parts of Australia, where there's a big mining industry, the research is funded by mining corporates. But uh, if the results, mainly about sustainability and, and, and ecology, but if the results are kind of damaging to the mining industry, they are not allowed to publish or, or researchers know that if they publish, they might not get their contracts renewed or they may not get further funding, which to me is an example of how science could be politicized. So do, do you believe in the idea that science is objective? And if so, what does that mean even objective? I mean, I think if you pushed it for a purely um, a, a purely uh, rigorous philosophical definition of objectivity, it's hard to argue that any human endeavor is purely mm. objective. Um, we could get into a long dispute about whether the rules of logic or arithmetic are like, but I don't want to, that, that's, that's a, a sort of higher grade of conversation that isn't actually relevant to the real world examples we're talking about here. Um, there are two features of science that I think are um, very important to of science as it exists today in the world around us. And one might argue are necessarily true, but I think that they're certainly true of science as it exists now. The first is that science is an elite activity. Um, it takes decades of training to get into the sciences. You need to learn a lot about math and a lot about coding and computers. You need to know the basis of the knowledge that existed beforehand. You need to know how to search the literature. Um, you need to learn experimental techniques. It's an, it takes many years to do, and not everybody has the time or resources to do it. So it, it, a feature of our world at present is that science is done by a smaller set of people, but affects a lot of other people. That um, elite quality, the fact that it requires a huge amount of training and is closed off to a lot of people, is a feature that even if the knowledge claims were 
100% objective and absolutely not biased in any way, there would be no way for external people to check it. But the second feature is the one I think is more important. The second feature of science is more important for understanding how it's, it's never exactly 100% objective, which is science is incredibly expensive. Someone has to pay for it. It's not something you can just do uh, in your spare time with nothing. To build a particle accelerator requires lots of investment. And even things that are less than that, to sequence a genome used to be very expensive. Now it's a lot cheaper, but you need to buy the equipment and you need to know how to use it. Um, and that means someone has to fund it. And the funding can come from states, it can come from corporations, it can come from wealth. In, in, the, early in the 17th and 18th century, in the early modern period, a lot of very rich people, like Robert Boyle was just extremely rich. And so he did a lot of experiments paying for it himself. Um, and one might argue that um, Blue Origin uh, and some of the other space exploration ventures now have some of that feature of the wealthy philanthropist just kind of throwing it away uh, on a scientific question that they're interested in. Um, Bill Gates as well. Um, I don't mean throwing it away. That's too strong. I mean just spending their money to investigate the world. Uh, so the fact that science costs means that you have to have buy-in from someone who's going to pay for it. And the people who are going to pay for it are not the people who usually have spent the decades building up the expertise to do it. So you need to get someone to support you. And that's always a compromise. Uh, so we hope that states say, like, like corporations have corporate bottom lines. Many corporations are like, try to be very good faith about it and say, look, publish the results on this gene because uh, it's good for the corporation to see that we're producing grade A science, even if it means that this drug isn't going to work. That's not usually how pharmaceutical industries work though. Some stuff just gets buried or not published or, and so on. That's not great, uh, but that is a feature. It's a compromise that we make in order to have science at all is to have corporations pay for part of it. As for the state, that's also a compromise. Um, it's not like you can use state money to do anything. For example, in most countries in the world, cloning on humans is banned, very banned. Uh, you, if you have very good scientific reasons for wanting to do it, you still can't get federal money to pay for it because, or state money to pay for it because it's just not permitted. Um, in the United States, it is illegal to use any federal funds to investigate the question of whether uh, firearms deaths and public shootings are a public health crisis. You cannot call it a public health crisis if you're paying for it out of federal money. That's political intervention. Like, why would we ever think that state intervention is not political? It, it, it is a wonderful thing about people's faith in science that so much of it is depoliticized, that the state is like, oh, go ahead and investigate your genes. Just, just do the research. We're happy to pay for it. That's a wonderful thing. But in many cases, there are interventions of one kind or another. So the fact that we are humans who have our own biases, which is another set of uh, concerns and rivalries and petty disagreements and have to pay for science and it's a, there's this disconnect from a broader public means that aspects of science are always going to either have subjective components intrinsically or be perceived as having subjective components. And I would say both. So um, that doesn't, I don't want to come off as anti-science or opposed to science. I, 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 I want to stress that like science is one of the best mechanisms we have for producing reliable knowledge. It just isn't the pristine reliable knowledge that's untouchable that it had been presented as in middle school textbooks.
it's more complicated than that. And just about every scientist when talking to you honestly and not for a PR conference will tell you that, you know, that there, there are petty people in the field. There are people who snipe at other grad students and prevent their work from being published. The peer review system has lots of flaws. All of that's true. That the, the question is, what's the alternative to that? And the alternative to that is worse. So what we have now is not perfect, but good, or at least as good as we're going to get at present with our current political economic system, publishing system, educational system, and brains. Mm. And and I was listening to a talk like a year ago, if I'm pronouncing her name correctly, Naomi Oreskes, whom you also talk yeah. about in the book, who said that in that talk, she said that nowadays when you publish with some universities, I don't know if it's mandated in the States or not, but when you publish a an article, you, you need to mention where you got the funding it's mandated in some universities or journals, maybe? Yeah, the journals often require that to, to list your conflict of interest. And that helps. It doesn't help with this uh, writing for the drawer thing, where like the mining company paid for something, the results are bad, and they just don't publish it. What it does mean is that when you see something is paid for by a mining company and it's published, there is probably a bias towards favorable to mining results. Not 100% of the stuff, but there's a factor. Uh, I was reading a study that if you analyze pharmaceutical, pharmaceutically funded publications, they are biased in favor of the industry by a certain percentage. That's actually kind of helpful to know, which means you have a factor that you can correct. You can say like, mm -hmm. it's going to be 1.7 percentage points too good. So you can just deduct it and know roughly where, you, where the results should be. So it's good that there is... Um, declarations of conflicts of interest, et cetera. There are, th those are uh, patches to the peer review system and to the publishing system to try and account for relatively recent um, worries about how corporations can distort the scientific record for the sake of profit. Um, so I, I'm in favor of those things. I just, they, they, don't, they, they, they address part of the problem, but not all of the problem. And I think there's a very good reason to do that as, as uh, Naomi Oreskes has talked in her book, Merchants of Doubts, if I'm not mistaken. And you have also talked yeah. about the idea of denialism. Maybe it's a good chance to talk about denialism sure. and what it, what it means and give us some examples of denialism. So denialism is like, a, it's a tricky term for me because like uh, pseudoscience, it's not a term mm. that anybody says. No one's like, I'm a denialist. Um, it is, however, a term that's discussed a lot in the public sphere. So I felt the need to talk about it. What denialism, uh, and I think there's ways in which denialist arguments are different from the most of the fringe mm. theories I discussed. Denialism, as Oreskes and Conway, her co-author, argue, and they're not the ones who coined the term, but it's part of this, yeah. is uh, a tradition that stems from the mid-1950s from the American tobacco industry, which issued um, something called the Frank Statement. Uh, it's not someone's name. It was meant to be a frank, candid, honest statement about uh, that they were investigating the connections between lung cancer and smoking. And then what those investigations later on came to be were um, they worked really hard to produce scientific looking stuff designed to spread doubt. So not to achieve certainty about a result, but to say, oh, we don't know the results yet. So we need to investigate further. So we can't regulate yet. And denialist the, 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 the research that people consider to be denialist in the science policy world 
is research funded by corporations whose goal is to suspend action, to keep doubt in play, to expand the error bars of any finding so that we don't know whether uh, coal causes acid rain or we don't know that burning fossil fuels creates climate change. We don't know yet. We're still researching it. And it sounds good because nobody wants to be against research. So it's just say, just let's research it a little more. We need to be much more sure. And that phenomenon um, is a phenomenon. You can document it from corporate archives that people were saying, look, we need, in the tobacco cases, it's very clear because we actually, through lawsuits, have the, uh, the correspondence. They, they say like, look, we just, we just need to delay a ban on smoking for longer. So um, find ways of producing results that make it seem like the mainstream consensus is wrong. The reason I think these are something, so that's a real phenomenon and it's something that is a, uh, a cause for, I think, significant public concern because they tend to be places where there's a lot of money riding on it, which is why the corporations are paying for it. And a public, uh, health and environmental damage are uh, environmental integrity are at risk. They usually are things where the, the, that the ecology or the health of individuals can be hurt if we let these doctrines sort of stand. So they're a cause for concern. I think they're different from the fringe sciences and that I don't think they're sincere. That is the people who are doing it know what they're doing. They know that they are a biochemist working for a tobacco company and they know what their job is, which is to produce results that delay regulation. Um, they're, they're, no, they're people, they're not, a lot of these people, they're not evil. They're like, they need, they need a job and this is a job. Um, and they get to do their own research on the side, which is uh, research they're proud of. And this is just something they do to pay the bills. They may sincerely believe they may sincerely believe it, but I think most most of them don't. This is different from the astrologers, I think, and the um, people who are believe in Bigfoot or the Loch Ness monster. They actually believe that those things are real, and they're genuinely interested in finding the result. Um, and that is that strikes me as a as a as a qualitative difference that's significant. But since they are so closely aligned with each other and that both of them are perceived by the mainstream scientific community as threats um, and as uh, potentially contagious threats that can affect the status of science more broadly in the culture, they deserve to be talked about next to each other. But I think the distinction is significant. And uh, again, we have it's a great thing that nowadays more and more scientists are you know, trying to make their ideas well known to the public through podcasts or through TV shows, uh, popular documentaries, and uh, which is a great way of uh, fighting, let's say, rise of, uh, well, I'm, 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 I'm after, you know, reading your book, I'm very careful how to use these words. So I <laughs> uh, saw very cautiously, I say pseudoscience, but again, yeah. and then, you know, from the time we've had science, there was pseudoscience and there were people who, simply spread wrong ideas and not not only in science but also in humanities i read a lot of history especially medieval history and when somebody talks about dark ages it just riles me up and i want to tell yeah. them look it's wrong but then i say well how much time do i have to spend debunking them or telling them maybe it's maybe it's more worth that i just spend time reading more books for myself it's not worth it's not gonna make you go away and you talk about deep debunking pseudoscience yeah. in your book well, do you think it's worth doing it in any way? 
Well, so so debunking is uh, debunking is a big top. It's a big area and a big topic because it is, in a sense, what the people on the fringe want. They want engagement. They want you to take them seriously because they, again, they think they're doing science. They're like, I have found evidence of some kind of telepathic effect. And if, if you know, huge, if true, like if we find this thing, it's going to be a big deal. So why don't you just take the time to look through my data and tell me where I'm wrong? And most psychologists and statisticians won't. And that's perceived by the people who are asking for the help as uh, haughty, arrogant, dismissive, classic elitism, a sign that these people aren't deserving of public trust. So it reinforces their interests in doing things. But what happens when, so first of all, the reasons they don't look at this stuff is because there are a lot of fringe theories that show up in people's inboxes, like a lot of them. And you, if you spent your time going through all of them carefully and finding all the flaws and then telling it to the person, uh, you wouldn't have time to do any science. And then somebody else two weeks later will come up with the same theory and ask you again, and then you have to do it all over again. Uh, so they just say, it's not worth it. I have a limited amount of time and a limited amount, and this is important, of resources that I can't spend the money that I have to do research debunking someone else's theory. So um, most scientists think debunking is not worth their time. There's another question about whether it's efficacious. Um, in the 1970s, a group of scientists from many different fields decided that they were going to debunk claims of parapsychology, uh, claims that there's telepathy or clairvoyance, but also the most famous example of this was um, an Israeli, um, uh, started out as a performer, but um, I don't know what he would call himself, and I don't want to uh, say something derogatory, named Uri Geller, who claimed he could bend spoons with his mind. Mm. Um, this it has a cameo in the Matrix, uh, the movie where the children are bending spoons. Like that's because spoon bending was a thing in the 70s where people thought they could do it. Um, Geller never got exposed as a fraud. So he claimed he had this ability to do this. But uh, a bunch of these scientists, Carl Sagan was one of the leaders of this, thought it was important to debunk this, to get rid of it. Um, and so they were going to do the tests. They were actually going to run controlled experiments and show that it was wrong. And whenever they did, people didn't care. Uh, the people who thought it said, okay, that result, that experiment's wrong, but there are all these other ones that show that there is a parapsychological effect. So let's just focus on those. And so it was like whack-a-mole. It was like you would hit one and then something would show up somewhere else. So debunking didn't seem to do the job even when you invested the resources to do it. And uh, the part of the reason for that, I think, is that uh, if I'm right, and the, the impulse for the fringe comes from an impulse for people wanting to be engaged in science, then um, when they find one scientific theory, one of the theories they think is scientific, but that the mainstream thinks is not, is rejected, they'll, they'll move to another one. They'll find something else. Uh, like they'll, the, so debunking is, uh, is never done. It, it, never, it never finishes its cycle because there will always be more of it. And it's not clear it's a good use of limited resources. Mm -hmm. So this is where, I, I, my position on this is sort of neither here nor there. As a historian, I'm just saying like, this is where the debates have often been. There's the, why don't we debunk? We claim we're about free inquiry. And then they start doing it and they realize it's endless and a waste of resources. So they don't do it anymore. And then they get attacked for being elitist. And this, this, this cycle happens many, many, many times. 
it's up there with the very fashionable on the American sort of uh, alt-right, the debate me vibe. It's like, why aren't you debating me? Like, I have the, like, if you think I'm wrong, just let's have a debate. And you're like, well, that's just not going to go anywhere. Um, and, but it looks bad to say, I'm not interested in having a conversation with you. So it, th these debunking seems to be stuck in a spiral where it's one understand, you understand the impulse for it, but it doesn't seem to do the thing that either those who want to debunk or those who want their claims to survive debunking want it to achieve. Mm. You're, you're absolutely right. It's quite a tricky situation whether you really should invest that time and effort. To, to, and even if you expose the other person, it's not going to end. Another thing that will come up from somewhere else, as you mentioned. I mean, sometimes it does. Sometimes the person's like, oh, I'm convinced there are no aliens. And then like, they're done. But that doesn't mean there's not somebody else who's going to find mm. an, it. Mm. it, it it, 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 I, I don't want to say one shouldn't engage with the theories. I'm just trying to explain why it is that scientists, establishment scientists often think it's not worth it. Yeah. And I'm uh, really interested in uh, part of your book. It's in the last chapter. So I could be wrong. So I'll let, I'll let you explain this. You talk, I'll just quote, read your book. Uh, so it's on page 96 when you say, the adversarial framework in which science is produced necessarily generates vestigial and controversial claims that can attract adherence. So do you mean that even by the very methodology we use, that very methodology could also create or generate pseudoscience or bad science? Well, it has the potential for it. So, so the, the, the fundamental point is that science today is constructed as an adversarial enterprise. And this makes sense. It, 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 people often point out that it looks a little bit like a courtroom, right? Like someone's putting forward an argument and someone's, and, and Popper has this too, right? You put forward a claim and someone else is like, I'm going to make that claim false. And that's how science works is by attacking other people. It has an Oedipal structure. You try to disprove your advisor and like this. And, and this mode is how science is organized now. The way you make a reputation for yourself is by proving somebody else wrong. And ideally someone else who is, bigger than you and more powerful than you. And then you say like, look, their data is bad. I redid the experiments and here's what the real result is. Um, that's uh, seen by many as a very uh, amazing and good feature of science because it generates constant criticism and constant skepticism. Um, science wasn't always organized this way. So in the medieval period, the way natural inquiry is done uh, was through commentaries on Aristotle for the most part. This is often seen as a very bad period, but that's not the point I want to make. It's that Aristotle makes certain claims about how nature is done. And then medieval manuscripts, often anonymously, would provide questiones, sort of comments on it, and say, well, he says that, but it's not quite right. Like, it could be that this, but maybe this. And then somebody else would comment on it as well, and someone else would comment on it as well. And because there's no credit, it's all anonymous, no one's really trying to make their reputations on it. And so it has a more collaborative quality, although it's constrained within an Aristotelian framework. It can't really go beyond that. It's always framed as a commentary within a tradition. But that was a different way of organizing science, organizing inquiries into the natural world. Our current system has this fighting model, and that's how science papers are too. They have footnotes, and the footnotes are mm -hmm. to other articles that they're usually trying to refute. And that's how things work. And often, papers don't cite stuff that's older than two years old because that stuff's already gone. What they're interested in is attacking the stuff now. So what do I mean that that provides a, a, a sort of breeding ground? So 
every time you have an adversarial context, you have a winner and a loser. Someone's going to lose, whether it's the upstart who tries to attack the mainstream theory and fails, or it's the mainstream theory that goes down. If the mainstream theory goes down, it could become vestigial, right? It could become and have a sort of core of interest in it. Um, an example of the upstart was the claim that the measles, mumps, and rubella vaccine caused autism, which was published in a leading British medical journal, The Lancet, um, in the very late 90s. It's now been retracted and refuted many times. Uh, so it was attacked in an adversarial context and rejected. Um, However, it serves as a node of crystallization for people. And so it's kind of vestigial. It, it lives on in some capacity. But it's not even vestigial. It's more that it was a controversy. And the controversy played out, and one side won. But the people on the losing side didn't just give up. They just kept on keeping on. And that is a byproduct of the adversarial system. It just The, the ground is littered with old theories and rejected theories, which could be picked up and continued as a seed for either keeping a controversy going for a while, and it may end up succeeding, or uh, becoming a kind of node for vestigial science to crystallize around. Um, and and that, um, that, that, that I, don't, I, I think that that's just intrinsic for how we've organized our scientific process. If you organize it around winners and losers, you have to actually have a, a, an account for what happens to the losers. Some of them just say, good job, you beat me. And uh, they go back to work and try and do something else. But some people don't. And those people shift off into another realm that becomes fringier. And sometimes it's an okay fringe and sometimes it's a little too far out there. So I think that's how I would put it, if mm. that makes sense. Yeah. And, and I guess it sort of also explains when we see examples of Again, very cautiously using the term pseudoscience or bad science, maybe yeah. coming from established scientific communities. You also have examples of that how um, information is publishing, for example, famous journal Nature. And I think you talk about a very yeah. interesting uh, experiment, water memory, that I've never heard of. Yeah. Uh, yeah, well, yeah, water memory is this, uh, it's, it's, the, it's the scientific argument under the, the claim of a scientific argument under homeopathy, where you take a little bit of arsenic and like obviously arsenic is going to kill you so what the people who say you should take it as a medicine do is they dilute it a lot mm. but they dilute it so much that statistically there's no arsenic in the water anymore uh, and the claim of the water memory advocates was actually the, the water somehow retains some properties of the thing that was in it even when the thing is no longer there and so when it was published it was seen as, oh my God, this is evidence that homeopathy is real. And uh, the scientific, most of the scientific community was like, there's something wrong with his data. It was investigated and it turns out something was wrong with the data. So that's, mm. but, 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 but yeah, stuff gets published in scientific journals all the time. Um, but most of the stuff published in leading scientific journals will be wrong in 10 years. It's just like, it's it, like, that's just what the process is. And it'll be replaced by something better. But sometimes the stuff published doesn't just go away when it's refuted. It has mm. a life of its own. And I guess uh, it was a month ago that I just came across a news item where it was uh, vice chancellor of, I don't remember the name of the university. One of, it was one of the Ivy League universities. They had He had published an article with a number of other authors like 10 years ago 
but then he had to resign because finally after 10 oh. years yeah, this is the president of Stanford, actually. Mark Stanford, yeah, yeah. So, yeah. He was also the head of a biotech company, but he was one of a team. But he was the principal investigator, so they were on his grant mm. and in his lab. And they published stuff where there was dubious material, recycled graphs, data that was – and he probably didn't do it, but technically he's responsible for yeah. it. And, yeah. uh, and how – the consequence, so th there are mistakes in scientific publishing all the time, and there's fraud in scientific publishing all the time, too. Fraud is also like an, it's an adjacent phenomenon to the fringe, but it's not quite the fringe. That is, some stuff that seems like it was fraudulent can become the source of fringe material. Mm -hmm. This is the claim around cold fusion, which was an experiment in the 19, late 1980s that many argue now was fraudulent, but there's a whole fringe community organized around it. Um, but but in his case, it was sort of like, what's your responsibility for the integrity of your cohort, uh, of your team, and who's responsible for that? And how can you hold a position of leadership in a research institution if you don't adhere to the same standards yourself? And that was a high profile case. There was a case in the late 80s that was very similar in structure, where David Baltimore, who was at the time the president of Rockefeller University um, and a Nobel laureate, um, was for work on retroviruses actually which is a, a which is AIDS is a, HIV is a retrovirus um uh, it's very important work from the 70s um where someone in his lab was accused of fraud and he got embroiled in it because he was in charge of the lab but he ended up surviving he became the president of Caltech and he was vindicated of having any responsibility in it and it's possible that Tessier Levine thought it would go that way uh but it didn't mm. it, it went the other way um Fraud is a very interesting topic on its own, right? But it's it just it, it, it's it, it raises this question of sincerity again, which I think is uh, important for taking the fringe seriously. Is recognizing that most of these people mean well, and they really think that they they're excited about nature. They just have a different theory than you have about it, and recognizing that is not just like a sort of ethical recognition of people's basic decency but it's also a way of understanding what motivates them. And if you want them to stop because you think what they're advocating is harmful, you need to understand where they're coming from to try and persuade them otherwise. You can't just say, well, that's just pseudoscience because that yeah. argument has literally never in the history of the world persuaded anyone. Yeah. Um, and again, i go back to what I said earlier about that interview that I had with um, uh, from short gender, I forgot her name, about vaccine hesitancy. And that's exactly the point she made. Yeah. The moment you say you are an anti-vaxxer or the moment you say, oh, you're a conspiracy theorist, you don't believe the scientists, yeah. you've completely shut down dialogue because some of them are really skeptical and they need to be maybe educated. They need to be uh, talked to it to, to see what the root of the problem is. Um, and I have another question. It's not uh, it's nothing that you've discussed in the book, It's uh, but I'm curious to know your ideas about it. You know that these days... Uh, there are a lot of well-meaning scientists who are fighting and debunking pseudoscience or bad science or fringe theories. And governments uh, are also in many countries, including Australia that I live or I guess in the United States as well. There's a lot of push to encourage more and more students to read science, STEM. Mm -hmm. Of course, their idea is to help and you know, help the economy in the future because jobs are there. And there has been this really, really... Uh, let's say, harsh defunding of humanities, 
Uh, do you think it's going to serve our society well in the future or in general, a society that is completely science-driven, do you think will be a well-functioning society? It's a hypothetical question, it, I know. It, it, yeah, no, it's, it's also it, it, it's, it's impossible to have such a society. And it, it, like whenever it's depicted in literature, it's always the dystopia. But even those are not. Um, uh, I, I teach a course regularly, which is the history of contemporary science. But what I mean is the science in the last 50 years. Um, and the students are overwhelmingly science students. And they, they honestly, they know more about the technical details of what we're discussing than I do because they're working in a lab that's during the neuroscience right now, whereas I can only see what's published, right? Like I only see stuff that's a little bit out of date. Um, so, uh, but the reason why the class is valuable is because there are many features of the world that uh, aren't STEM, but that organize how STEM works. This is part of that fact that we're not, that, that science isn't completely objective, but has to be a compromise with other world. So patents and patent law, intellectual property in general, it's not a STEM field. It's, it's just, that's a part of law. Uh, you need to actually understand how the law works to know what that is. Science funding is similar. Um, many features of um, how historical developments over time how rhetoric operates is incredibly important in scientific publishing and in scientific communication. Those are all, those are, those aren't intrinsic. Science is always communicated in language. It's not like an accident that it's written in languages. It's also not an accident that it's now written in English. That's a historical process that I wrote a book about a couple of years ago. Um, but uh, the fact that it's communicated in a language that wasn't designed to deliver science means that there are always specialized vocabularies, compromises, rhetorical devices that are used. And not knowing how to understand those means you actually can't do the science. You, you, because we are all people, let's put it this way, we're all humans. The humanities is actually part of understanding that. And uh, it, it, scientists are humans too. And humanistic knowledge is a way of helping them do what they do. And not having it is... Uh, is very short-sighted. And you, know, you see this in a lot of institutes. MIT started out with a very few requirements in the humanities and social sciences, and almost not like considering it important. A quarter of all the courses a student must take at MIT are in the humanities and social sciences. Now it's a requirement. You have to, like, it's, you can't just take computer science all day because you, then you can't function. You can't run a company because you don't know how companies exist. You can't manage people because you don't understand people. Um, and those, uh, so the, the, the goal of many historians of science is to get people to recognize that science is a social product, it's not a social fiction, but it's a, but it's a product of people working in groups and learning how that operates gives us tools to do our science better, whether that means more responsibly, more effectively, or just or more efficiently, but you can't do that without understanding other aspects of the world that are not strictly within the four corners of science. Uh, before ending this conversation, uh, Michael, is there any other work, any other book you're working on? Uh, so currently I'm, I'm writing a book. So I, I started out as a historian of Russian and Soviet science. Um, that was my, my origins. And, uh, uh, while I'm still very interested in fringe stuff and things that are called pseudosciences, the current project is on what happened to science around the world when the Soviet Union dissolved in 1991. 
both uh, what happened to the people, what happened to the infrastructure, but also one country broke into 15. 90% of the science was divided between Russia and Ukraine. Russia had a lot more of it, but Ukraine had a sizable chunk. But the other countries too, and then the Eastern Bloc, and then you had you had to develop a national science system for something that was scaled much bigger and how that process worked. And so the story, uh, as I envision it now, it starts from the Chernobyl accident in April 1986 mm. and then runs until the Russian invasion of Ukraine in February 2022, where you can see, especially in Russia and Ukraine, different ways of adapting their sciences to a new environment once the Soviet state was gone. Mm. So that's the current project. Wow, fascinating. And I, I certainly hope to be able to talk to you about that book once it's out. When do you expect it to be published? Oh, that's going it, well, it to, it has to be written first. I expect it will be three years. It's, it's <laughs> three probably years, when yeah. it will appear. So mm. if you're still doing this and I'm still doing this, I would love to talk again. Great, great, wonderful. I really enjoyed this conversation and I certainly hope to Me be too. able to talk to you about your future work as well. Thank you very much for taking the time to talk with us on New Books Network. Thank you very much for having me.